My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo. My guest this week is entrepreneur, former professional cyclist, and five-time Tour de France winner, Greg LeMond. We explore his career in cycling and get into everything, from representing the United States as the first American to win the Tour de France, to relaunching his company, LeMond Bikes. Greg talks about growing up with no expectation of ever being recognized by mainstream media, and how he's proud of being part of a manufacturing revolution with carbon fiber, with the goal of making cycling more accessible to people everywhere. Plus, he wants us in on how e-bikes basically make you a bionic person, and if his perspective on cycling doesn't make you want to get out and ride, I don't know what will. It's the legend himself, Greg LeMond. You know, it's funny because from lockdown, I got really into bicycling, as did about, you know, a oh, cool. hundred million other people from. <laughs> it's uh, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's great, but we can't get components. Literally, it's like there's nothing available. Used to be like a 30 to 60, 90 day lead time from like Shimano uh, components. A year out. A year out. Jeez. Just like we're missing just a break. Um, we have a 1,500 sets and we're missing a break and we can't put a bike together unless we have it. And that won't be, we're supposed to be here in December. Now it's April and I hope they come in April. So it's really crazy. But anyways, that's great. No, I, yeah. I love it. No, it's, it was, it's been a ton of fun. And it, it was funny because we lived uh, in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. We lived right next to a bike shop. And we would walk by there all the time. And I was like, you know, maybe I should get a bike. Maybe I should get a bike. And I would go in there and it, in my mind. And so like, I'm going to apologize here for the ignorance I had at, at what bikes truly cost. Because in my mind, I knew there's like a Tour de France bike. That's like the price of a, you know, Camry. Or there's a, <laughs> or there's like, you know, the bike that I had when I was a kid, which I think it was a huge stretch for my parents. And that was like $200. So like, oh, I, I had no idea of what the true cost is. And so I went in there and I'm like, this is a cool bike. And the guy's like, oh, well, this is, you know, a carbon fiber track. Da, da, da. And I was like, okay. And I was like, you know, and in my mind, I'm like, I bet I could swing about 500 bucks for a bike right now. I don't know if it's planned, <laughs> you know? And he's like, um, this is around 3,800. And I was like, oh, and it was all he had. And what I, was crazy is those were selling out. Like people were coming in and they're like, oh, fine. Five grand. Sure. You know, 2,200 bucks for a bike. Fine. No, it's and bikes. Honestly, um, sometimes if you know what you're looking at, even on eBay, you could find some great deals because people are switching bikes out every two, three years. And uh, which is good for bikes business. But there's some I have I have some of my old carbon fiber bikes from uh, 2006. And I'm to say they're as good as a bike today. Yeah. So, so, but bikes are very expensive. I, I have to say, I struggle to think about going in like a top rated carbon fiber bike, 12 or $13,000. I'm going, I think of what I could buy with that. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> but I don't know. I think a bike, at least it gives people a lot of, uh, there's a lot of value derived from it out of pleasure and fitness and health. And it is a sport and people who like cycling, part of it is the equipment. Um, but I'm also a practical type of person at $3,500, $4,000, unless you're racing the Tour de France, that's a great bike. Not, <laughs> you, you, and you could win the Tour de France on those bikes. You can. Well, like going back, I mean, cause you had, you'd won in 86, right? And the, the bike that you had, what, what, what was that cost? If you don't mind. <sighs> well, I, I'll, this is great. Cause when I started cycling, see so you're, how old are you? 
I am 35. So I was born in yeah, 85. <laughs> yeah, well, I was born in 61. So <laughs> I, but how I got into cycling, I was a skier and I wanted, I went to a ski camp. I wanted to be a freestyle hot dog skier. So I, I just comparing your prices, you, you actually didn't take into account for inflation because oh, shit. in 75, <laughs> I went to a ski camp. I said, I want to be a freestyle skier. And when I was there, they recommend riding a bike. And I came back and I, as a kid, I had to buy everything that I earned except for Christmas and birthday presents. But when I came back, I, you know, did about a month of lawn mowing and bought a, uh, went into a Raleigh um, dealership. And my bike then was a Raleigh Grand Prix at $125. And my dad bought one uh, at the same time. We started riding, but when I I did a club race in Reno, Nevada, it was that's where I grew up, Reno. And I got second place out of all these people. And they said, you know, I think your son has a lot of talent, but he needs a real racing bike. And uh, so the only racing bike in Reno was a yellow Chinelli. And that was an Italian Campanole equipped Chinelli. Um, what I didn't know has been on the floor for at, at least at that point, it was that was by 76, at least two years on the floor. And uh, anyways, we ended up buying that. That's my parents bought that for me. We had a race the next week, but it was $800. That was a lot of money. So that's that at that time, that would be equivalent of at least six, $7,000. Let's say, I, I don't know, that won't account for inflation. Actually, when you think about $800, that doesn't, I'd love to do an inf inflation cost because uh, that was, that was the what top year of 75. That is that what you said? 75. 70, so that's beginning of 76. So it's, it's, a, it's about $400 or it's, excuse me. It's about $4,000. And they've jumped to 12,000. Yeah. That is a little bit crazy. I think, yeah. yeah part of it. I, I don't know. It's, I think the components, I don't know if the components, I mean, Campanola was made in Italy. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know. It's a business. I guess they're making money today. <laughs> and well, bikes. yeah, but I think there's also, there are certain things which I'm sure you know better than anyone in terms of the technology available. I mean, just, just when you look at how, geez, look at like Shimano and, the, and shifting and how much that's evolved, you know, cause I mean, the first bike I ever had that was like a, you know, air quote racing bike was a Lamont and it was my friend's dad's and oh, cool. he gave it to me. That was sick. It was like oh, cool. blue and yellow and it was like the, the font, oh my oh, yeah. God, the font yeah. and everything. it was perfect. And I would bike around on that thing and I never really knew how to shift it. And so I'd always constantly break it because the shift, it was actually up on the top part of the handlebars. Oh, you okay. Know. You must've modified. Oh, we had a fixie. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I That's mean, he was, bar. It, it was, it was sick. And, uh, you know, but thinking of where that was now versus say the bike that I have now, which, you know, just tap my little tap. finger and I'm flying through gears. I mean, the technology is through the roof. Yeah, I think, well, actually, it's funny because I just was talking to somebody. And I find it hasn't evolved quick enough because I, I used a, an electro, electric derailleur in 1991. Oh, and wow. it was it worked as well as Shimano's today. But they were so far, it was a Mavic derailleur. They were so far in advance and it had electrical issues. It got wet, it, it stopped. I mean, I was stuck in the biggest gear when I was racing. But I, it, it, the thing is, a lot of the quality has increased dramatically. Quality and, and carbon fibers increase the cost. But yeah, I think carbon fiber, it's, there's a lot of hand labor in carbon fiber bikes. Um, I, 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 the truth is companies have to make the profit to actually innovate. And uh, 
and I'm in the bike business, so I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't, I, I do, I do think I, I want to provide more value as, uh, as a manufacturer. And I think going, have an omni-channel distribution, we're direct consumer, but we are looking at some retail. But I think uh, with our manufacturing and some of the stuff we're working on material-wise, we should be able to at least bring more value for an equivalent price of, of today's bikes. Yeah. Um, but I think, I guess I, I, you know, when you look at, uh, I think e-bikes have really changed things in, in terms, that's probably the biggest change in the industry is uh, right now, I, I would say that in Holland, it used to be, if you went to a bike shop, it used to be 90% mechanical bikes, 10% electric. It's flipped. It's literally flipped in the high-end bike shops right. because most of the city bikes are these really low-cost uh, Dutch bikes. So that's been a big drive in the market. It's really grown it. I do think like the Tour de France, um, I think with this, with the internet broadcasting, I worked for Eurosport for like four years and I had a show, Le Monde of Cycling, but it was shown in 67 different countries. What's that, that's what that, that has done is brought a lot more people into cycling, road cycling. And so the sport from a participation perspective is significantly bigger than when I started racing. And it's more of a fitness um, lifestyle experience uh, sport today. I keep waiting. Let's see. I, I, that's what I think is uh, really unique from when I was riding. Most of the people at a race were men, very few women. Um, there were a lot of racers at that time, but almost no women rode a bike. It was, you had the women racers, but if you saw recreation riders um, or people out on a road bike, uh, it was always men. And today, this it's the growth in women's uh, cycling and participation is, is probably tenfold um, higher than when I was riding and racing in the in the eighties, which is great. Which I, yeah. I, I love it. I mean, I also imagine still that, the best form of transportation. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're right. I mean, and I also imagine, at least for me and a lot of other friends, got into biking from spin class. Yeah, that's and, great. And and you know, and next thing you know, they're buying whatever bike they're getting and then putting them on like those like Wahoo kickers and all those other things into which yep. like they're doing the, the, their own sort of spin at home. Um, it's, yeah, it's I had a nuts. spinning company that's, so we made LeMond Revmasters. We were in a lot of clubs, but it's funny because um, I had a licensing agreement partnership with Trek and they were convinced that spinning was a different market. And anytime you get people on a bike, they become cycling enthusiasts and, you think of what Peloton's doing today and the amount of people on a, on a uh, riding indoors, those people eventually will discover the beauty of riding outdoors too. And it's, it's, I think like when you think of the bike share programs globally, that's brought people on into, uh, onto bikes. Even if it's just getting around a the city, they kind of rediscover the joy of riding a bike and then they become cycling enthusiasts. And so anytime you get people on bikes, that's where I believe with like e-bikes, uh, if you're out of shape, not in great condition, getting on a bike can be very painful. If you have electric assist, it makes it enjoyable. And so there's been purists in the uh, bike industry for, for years, especially in the United States within the bike shops, that it had to be, you know, mechanical, which, you know, I, I can understand if, if you're trying to compete where you're, you're wanting to do challenges yourself, but uh, challenge yourself like in a Grand Fondo. But the most important is getting people on a bike and exercising. And that's what e-bikes have really done is get people out there. And so it's the closest thing you can get to being a bionic person. You know, it feels <laughs> like you're uh, in great shape, even if you're not. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and especially like, I mean, I would consider myself in relatively decent shape and I was biking all over the place. And then recently I've been biking around in Missouri and, you know, there's the Katy trail. That's basically right outside my window almost. And yeah, and that's a huge, massive, long trail and going through there and the Hills around there. I mean, I was like, good God, like I, I can, you know, and I was shifting around and doing my thing and still getting my ass kicked on a bike. I mean, it is just, it's intense. Well, today, today you have gears. When I started racing, you had, I think a 42 front chain ring and maybe a 21. So I grew up in Reno and I would climb these 15 mile climbs and it was, it killed me. The beauty is when you do that, I think that's the addictive part and that why people want great equipment is as you get in better shape, the faster you go. And there's a, with inertia, with the way the legs go around, there's, it's been, you know, it's been proven that riding bikes with a higher inertia allows people to work out even harder and deeper because it's rhythmic and it's something to do with muscle contraction. But so as you get in better shape, those heels become a little bit easier or you just go faster, but um, there's an addiction to it. So that's what I discovered when I got into cycling. It was, I, I remember the first ride I did to Carson city for my dad's house in Washoe Valley. And I had to walk up the the hill from Carson city to, to uh, my dad's house. And I think within two weeks I was doing 25 mile rides and you get in shape very quickly with bikes. Yeah. So it's, yeah. You'll, yeah. You, I think I like even an, an equipment. I think that's where um, people believe that the, the better equipment <laughs> you get, the faster you go, which is true, but uh, you'll do the same thing on your bike. Your bike is probably better uh, than what I won the Tour de France on in 86. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Probably weighs the same too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy light. I mean, it's embarrassing how I, like I just had no idea how far they've come until I, you know, went and saw the bikes in my friend's garage and was lifting those up and was like, you know, weak. <laughs> well, I got your aluminum frame. I, I gotta say like, if I was to upgrade that to make yourself, um, the biggest deal is wheels. I mean, if you want to make a bike that's because uh, aluminum is going to weigh a little bit more than a carbon fiber, um, it might be a little bit harsher, but not significant. But your wheels will make a big difference. Mm. And if you ever that's if that's if you ever do the upgrade, go for lighter wheels. I'll lighter keep that in mind. That, that yeah. really changes. Something I wanted to ask you about, you know, because so much of sports, specifically sports in the U.S have always been personality led. You know, when you think about baseball, you think about, you know, Ken Griffey Jr., Babe Ruth, you know, golf, Tiger Woods, basketball, LeBron James, Michael Jordan. And for for the longest time with with cycling, there was really no one until you. I mean, at least in the US. I mean, you you kind of single-handedly put bicycling on on the map. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I think uh, there was one other rider, Jonathan Boyer, that did the Tour de France. But it, I think it took it took somebody going to the Tour de France doing well to get that national publicity. Well, and uh, but I winning, but I do too. And winning, <laughs> yeah. But it was interesting at that time um, when I just got into cycling. Cycling it had this; it was a quite a big underground sport. I mean, I think when I Northern California or the I think the country had let's call junior age group, which is 15 to 18. I think there were 10,000 registered racers at that time, which was quite big for the United States because even 15 years ago, the junior category dropped to where they had three or 4,000 
uh, registered racers. Wow. And so, um, but nothing was mainstream and it was kind of like, um, I mean, there's nobody competing internationally. There were a few riders, a guy named Mike Neal, George Mount, that went to Europe just before I did. But right, right when I got into cycling, there was a boom of cycling in the early 70s. Uh, people were riding their bikes. Uh, at the end of the 70s, a race called the Red Zinger Classic um, was the first America's big, big race. And that brought European riders over. There were a lot of people watching that race, but it was really in 83, the Tour de France was uh, broadcast by CBS. And that was the big um, exposure for, for cycling, but still it didn't get traction. I, I, and I got, I grew up with no expectation ever getting recognized in the U S I I remember doing two interviews where I spent a week with sports illustrated and photographer and another time, almost 10 days, neither one of the stories got published. Uh, That was like 83 and 84. And so I got to the point where I, you know, it's kind of, I, I figured, I would never be recognized in the United States, which wasn't a problem for me, uh, but I found it kind of ironic, at least one of the biggest sports in the world, most popular, uh, and we had no knowledge of the sport. And so I think when I, I would say 85, starting 85, 86, but it took 86 to really put it on the map. And I think in 89, when I went in 89 was where at least I got more mainstream coverage Mm -hmm. in in the U.S. People like a comeback story, but it was... uh, you know, I, I couldn't imagine having television when I started cycling. I mean, we would wait a month to get the results of the Tour de France. So just to get to read about it. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And the the other thing I was thinking more about, too, is so like for me, you know, I was on a bike yesterday and I was doing some, you know, the Apple fitness spin class. Right. And I had my watch on. And so I'm I'm you know, I have basically, I'm surrounded by data. I know what my heart rate is. I know how hard I can push myself. And, and I was thinking, I was like, I'm going to talk to Greg Lamont tomorrow. What, what was he measuring anything with? Like, you know, like, Ah, yeah. yeah, Well, actually I started measuring at the time when I first started cycling, they would do a VO2 max test where they put you on a bike and they'd measure, they'd ramp you up and would take your power output and how much oxygen you would take in which is an indicator if you're talented or not. But really, there was no other measuring device. And then Polar, um, a Swedish company, came out with a heart rate monitor in 1983, and I started using that. Mm. And then I had a coach that um, was heart rate-based intensity uh, in 85, and I wrote a book based upon uh, stuff that I learned from – he was a sports scientist, physiologist, so I really got into that, and I I love the – complexity and under, trying to understand my body with exercise. And so, um, but the only thing that you could really measure was, was your heart rate, which became, it was pretty good, but it wasn't until 1991, 92, when I started using SRM, which is a power meter that measured your power. Uh, that was probably the biggest advancement in terms of training and knowledge of how your body is really doing because power output is, your oxygen will, t- you know, output a power. It's just like a car. If you look at a, a normally aspirated car, if you want to take in and go fast, you have to take in more oxygen. And mm. the efficiency is about the same of how, you know, the fuel, how much fuel you take in oxygen from a human to a car is very close. I think it's a cyclist is about 23% efficiency. Same thing with an automotive. So there's all this kind of physics and basics. Um, but you can never measure power, which you can do in a car. You can see how much 
horsepower. Right. But with this power meter, you were able to measure your torque, your on your crankset RPM, that's force times velocity, that measures your power output. But you could directly relate that to how much oxygen you take in. What was so great about looking at that is it gave me a measurement of where I was when I'm really in great shape, where I am when I'm really out of shape, because heart rate could be, you could be really out of shape and do, produce a very high, high heart rate, but your power up could be lower. And so there's, that's the, the probably the biggest advancement was in 19, actually the first power meter came out, same guy that um, I got the power meter from uh, was 1989 and it was used with the German track team. But I was one of the first early adopters of uh, using power. And today that's almost every cyclist uh, rides a bike with their power output. Yeah. A lot of data, but it's, it's a great way to measure your, um, your fitness level, see your improvement. But most importantly, if you're training and you're trying to keep yourself in shape, it shows you really when you need to recover. Uh, you, when you're, you know, if you do a certain effort, you can't get to that power, your legs burn. It's telling you to slow down, take a day off because every day going intense is not the best way to maintain a high level of fitness maybe three days a week of intensity and the other days are easy, moderate riding. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like these days I'm, I'm plagued by the, how, how much data I'm surrounded with. You know, I had a whoop band for a long time, which I don't know if you're familiar with them. They like, uh, um, you know, there's no sponsors or anything, but they, they like, it's a little bracelet thing. That's like an Apple watch, but doesn't have a face on it and you wear it on um, your arm and it's 24 seven monitoring, but their big thing is they um, like, they kind of like lead with the fact that they can measure your recovery. So, um, you know, they're like, based on your heart variability, we can, we can measure, yeah, we can measure your recovery and tell you whether or not you should go hard this day or take a rest. And so that was kind of nice, but Next thing you know, I looked down at my wrist and I had an, you know, an Apple watch on, I had my, <laughs> my Rolex on cause I love watches. And then I had my, my whoop band on. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I'm still a crappy athlete. I was like, this data isn't helping me. <laughs> well, it could get over, honestly, it can get overwhelming. And yeah, the beauty of, I, I say beauty of power and it's, it's very simple. It's no different than people who go into a weight room. They know they know the force of the power. Actually, if you think of weightlifting, if you put a hundred pounds in and you lift very slowly, you get a certain amount of power. And if you put a lot of weights in and it's really hard, it's you're producing a lot of force, but to get power, you need to be able to do rapid movement. And mm. so, um, but when you're doing that, if you're doing weights, if you do a rep, uh, you know, say 10 sets, uh, 10 reps, two sets, three sets to exhaustion, You'll have a benchmark. You know, you know you're doing that at 100, 100 pounds. Two, three days later, you go in there. If you're not recovered, you're not going to be able to do the same set. Right. And that's how power works. Literally, if you just if you have some, um, I have some test protocols, a sprint, a couple of different efforts, and I instantly know that I'm not recovered, and that's when I take a break. And that's probably mm. the easiest. Knowing when to recover and when you're recovered to work out is really uh, the most critical part. If you're recovered. However you do it, you go all out, you put an intense ride, um, your body's going to react to that. You don't need a power meter for that. It's really if you want to see how you're recovering and to see if you're making progress. So right. heart rate monitors are are decent, but they don't show even heart rate variability by the time you 
really see a difference in heart rate variability, you could be chronically overtrained. So really important to have something that lets you know right away, instantaneous, if you're, you're actually recovered. And that's what a power meter actually does. Wow. And one of the other things that I was curious about too, is like, for me, so much of all of my activity and for many other people is, uh, revolves around music and what they're listening to. And like, I mean, right. did, did you, did you have a Walkman at your side while you're cruising at the tour de France? I mean, like, how do you no, get in the zone? I wish. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you, you get it. Actually, when you ride outdoors, you're so aware of all your surroundings and you can't have any noise. You got to listen for cars. And so it's a safety <laughs> issue. But when I, I do train indoors, um, I used to do intervals indoors and I always had music and it does motivate people. And I think that's why I like soul cycle and those indoor classes it's it's music gets people going makes you feel good that's why what were you we have what what were you listening to oh i don't know it's everything i like every i'm gonna look at like moby i like so many different i like every type of genre of of music but it was always kind of um i always like upbeat kind of mostly like i hate to say it like not super techno dance music but something i had i had we had at our um at a company called Lamont Fitness, and we made really, I mean, very high quality indoor bikes. And I had a um, guy that worked for us. Uh, he did the best soundtracks. And it was a mixture of, um, I don't know, like new age pop, everything. He would mix it up and do intervals based upon like the beat. So you'd, right. It, it, I really enjoyed, he would put soundtracks for me together. And, uh, you know, I, 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 whatever the music is, I'm, I'm always going around all different types of artists. Um, but uh, more, I, I guess I'd say more, um, I don't know. I can't even remember. It's been a while since I've written indoors. No, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I've been, because uh, I, you know, yesterday I was on that bike and listening to the training stuff and it was all these songs and like, while they were good and I felt like I get it, the point of the music is kind of like helping sync up your heart rate and your brain and get you all in the vibe. But all the music was just crap. And oh, no, I, generic, I just switched- is it generic well, kind of, is it not leading bands? I mean. No, I mean, they're, they have this like, it's pretty smart. I mean, they, if you have Apple music, you know, as you're more locked into the whole platform, you can okay. listen to the playlist and it's actual songs. And so they have the music license to use them, but they're just bad songs that like, I don't know what the lyrics were, you know, like there was nothing, you know, I mean, they, they use a James Brown song, which I was like, fine. But I mean, if James Brown in his grave knew that, <laughs> a bunch of ring dings <laughs> were working out to get up off that thing. He'd be like, what in the hell? <laughs> no, this is, I would listen to my own music, good music that I wanted to, to listen to whatever I'm listening to. I mean, I, I can't even think of, um, let me just look at my list of artists because it's, um, I mean, Steely got, Dan is basically all I listen to when I'm on a bike because it's slow enough and fast enough at times that I can like push myself. I think it's just, you know, there are time signatures and BPMs, you know, like, uh, can't buy a thrill. You listen to do it again. And it's just like that grind. Steely Dan would be kind of slow for me. Well, well, I haven't won the tour de France, sir. <laughs> no, no, I just, who did, you know, I can't even remember the killer. I mean, he would put some, Oh, music there you go. Mr. Together. Brightside. That is the, everyone's workout thing that involves them usually breaking a machine. They're working on it so hard. <laughs> and the new order. He had some songs for new order. I'm there just looking at some of the, um, but it was it was Red Hot Chili Peppers to um, U two. Um, that's some dance music. 
It's funny, I can't remember with dance music that type of music. I can't. I don't know any artists like that. It's it's see it's, uh, that's the that's the problem because you're just like yes. uh that song that was 18 minutes long and maybe the person said three words. <laughs> oh, that, that would be oh no, I could not do that. No, I have to listen to music I'm really into at that yeah. moment. That's why I said I I it all depends on the years I was riding. I haven't ridden yeah. my bike indoors for quite a few years. Just I I'm always prefer to go outside unless you're if you're living in St. Louis and the weather's bad and your time constraint, you know, you could do so much in an hour on an indoor bike. I say it's like almost worth two hours outside uh, because when you're outside, you're stopping at lights. I could get, I could get more than one hour. um, I could do any type of interval, any type of effort that needs, you need to do really well to win a race, get Mm -hmm. proficient at, Um, you know, I actually in 2007, I, did an experiment where I only trained four hours a week and I did a, a, a ride called Lake Tap de Tour in the Tour de France. It was 140 mile stage and it had six mountain climbs and I did it to do it with my son. And on my power output, I was averaging almost the same amount of power as I was as a pro cyclist within 10%. Wow. And that's a great thing about power. I, I know exactly the power I had when I was racing as a pro and I instantly know if I'm close to it. Even today, if I start riding with power, I'm going to know where I, what percentage I've improved, or or have I really digressed in my uh, as I get older? Is there really a huge performance drop when you get older? I was 47 at the time, and the auction amount of auction I took in while I was riding, I did a VO2 max test, was the same as when I was racing, and the power is pretty much within five to ten percent. So you don't go down as much as you get older, but Usually people in cycling, they go slower. They ride slower because it hurts to go hard. <laughs> so yeah. they, they ride like diesels. You train <laughs> like a diesel, you, get, you ride like a diesel. Yeah. I, I want to jump through some of the, just the, the mindfulness of, of cycling that's really started to happen, or at least being called out by a lot of other people now too, in the sense where, I mean, when I was in New York, um, I would go, you know, cycling near the Verrazano and I was just going all along the water and the bridge and I don't know if it was, maybe it was the COVID time or whatever was happening in the world politically, but like I would find myself in tears while I was cycling and it wasn't by what I was listening to. It was just like, I don't know, because it like, it feels like the sport of cycling allows you to, to actually like a full amount of exertion, but then you can also kind of zone out for a moment and observe everything else. And and it You're was absolutely right. It's like a spiritual holy moment I had while I'm just flying through, looking at the water, and the, it was insane. Well, so you're asking me why don't why didn't I ride with music? Because you literally <laughs> missed that point when you're I outside. You're right. Honestly, yeah. it is my it is really the I have better ideas. I think of more things when I'm riding, and and it's really not high focus. It's just it's like uh, it's it's like your brain's really thinking well, but it's it's. It's on uh, cruise. Like you're mm. not, I come up with most creative stuff when I'm writing and it's, I'm not trying to think too hard, but whatever the blood flow to the head of the brain, which is true. There's a lot of blood flow. There's a lot of chemical reactions in the brain that make people, you know, think better. I know that I have a ADD as a kid. Uh, I think exercise really allowed my brain to open up. You know, if I was in class, I would fall asleep. And so when I started writing, my grades got better. My ability to focus was so much better. And, and so when you're out there, and I think that is the beauty of riding outdoors versus riding indoors, where I, I look at riding indoors for 45 minutes 
to an hour. That's great for your fitness. You want to get in shape. But if you really want to get that, you know, the, the psychological benefit from cycling, part meditation, part um, I dream, you know, I think of things better when I'm on a bike. And you, you don't get that if you're listening to music. <laughs> and uh, it's a sensory overload, too. When you're outside, you're seeing things visually. Um, and I think there's, it's not just going hard on a bike that creates that overall um, contentment when you get done with the ride. It's the visuals. When you're riding at speed, you're suffering a little bit, but you're also thinking your mind gets to numb itself out. It is the closest thing, I think, uh, closest thing to meditation. And it's funny because um, I've tried meditating. I do it, but I find um, riding my bike is significantly better than uh, meditating uh, individually, like by myself. Um, all of it's good, but I do meditate on a bike. And I think that's what people love about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I find myself going back to that. I mean, and I, I've tried transcendental meditation and all these little mindfulness exercises and the, the goofy podcast headspace things that are telling me to do it. And they've usually resulted in a higher state of anxiety because I would be angry that I couldn't behave the way that they're telling me I need to behave in my ear. Cause it's like, now don't think about you're anything. So and I'm like, you're, do you have ADD? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, it's so funny because I, I had the same feeling because I, the only way I got to really be able to meditate when you did the kind of, um, yeah, the, the vibe, the, the sound vibration, but, um, I couldn't let my mind relax. I would only think, and didn't matter how many times I tried, but when I got on a bike, it just, my mind just relaxed. And, uh, I think there's different brain types. Obviously somebody will tell me that, well, if you, really had a hard time doing meditation. That's, you need to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Right. It needs to calm down, but there's yeah. some people that have different brains. Um, I think that exercise is uh, the best thing for the brain. I had a friend named John Rady, who's a, a Harvard psychiatrist, um, Harvard trained psychiatrist, but leading author on ADD. <clears throat> mm. And he wrote a book on, uh, called spark and it's worth reading. And it, it basically was, um, writing about Naperville school district in Illinois and a baseball coach got people exercising um, students and kids that did poorly in school um, just flipped their, their whole academic achievements around. They ended up going from, you know, an average school district to winning, I think the science uh, world championships uh, placing in the top three in math, science. And I went, I, I, I can't remember all the things that happened in, with the exercise, but they were mandatory riding, running or exercising 45 minutes a day at pretty high intensity. And uh, it's worth a read because it'll show you all the great things that uh, change and happen when you're exercising. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, I want to jump a little bit more to what you've done in, in terms of business and bikes over the years. I mean, you, you know, you had Le Mans bikes for a while. And it, you know, kind of shut it down for a bit. And you recently kind of relaunched the entire brand. Um, it, in terms of like an entrepreneur, what, what is that like in a sense to, to, to go back to something that you had done once before? Well, I started my bike company after I won my first Tour de France. And really it was the objective was to make sure I was able to race on the very best equipment. And when I got done with cycling, um, I sponsored uh, the teams that it was on until 94. 
the 95 Trek came along and we ended up doing a licensing deal for 15 years. And it worked out pretty well at the beginning. I top selling road bike in the US uh, by the early 2000s. And then um, I had a little uh, run in with Lance Armstrong, made a, a pretty benign comment, but it became a war from that point. And uh, Trek was a sponsor of Armstrong. And, and you know, they did, made a decision that they were just going to, you know, they had, I think, uh, nine years left on the contract, and they're just going to ride it out, really never put the effort in to build the brand. And we ended up separating in 2010 officially. But that whole period was very stressful. I got really a bad taste in my mouth for the bike business. And uh, after three, four years of absence from that, I decided I love design. I love products. And um, and I knew what I was talking about. I really felt like I... I did have a brand. I did have a lot of people who rode my bikes and, you know, it's something that um, I've got a creative imagination, creative mind. I'm not say uh, I'm not a, well, I'm not a trained industrial designer, but I really recognize good design and um, I love, that's a passion of mine. And I, I wanted to get back into the bike, bike business, but I wanted to get back uh, into it where I controlled my own destiny and was trying to figure out a way to get around the supply chain um, uh the typical bike supply chain, and uh, which is everybody's in the same uh, boat. You're buying from the same vendors. Um, and Trek's a very big, big company. And to compete against uh, big companies like that, you got to find a new way of distribution, a new way of manufacturing. That's what I've been working on. And I started off really looking at how I could build bikes in the U.S. and uh, how I could automate or actually bring some better consistent quality to the manufacturing process. That led me uh, to Knoxville, Tennessee, where um, Oak Ridge National Laboratory is located. And that's where they enrich uranium for the uh, Manhattan Project for the first nuclear bomb in um, World War II. After World War II, they became a material science uh, uh, laboratory. And they, in 2015, 2014, I think it was, I came and visited in 2015, they had just opened a advanced manufacturing facility and I came down to tour that. It was really more um, 3D printing. But during that visit, I ran into a team that uh, had invented a new low-cost way of making carbon fiber, and uh, which I realized the enormity of that. There's been really no advancement in, in how you make carbon fiber for almost 60 years. And their focus was making carbon fiber for automotive industry, wind, uh, any kind of big transportation uh, sector that would save energy and carbon fiber, you know, is five times stronger than steel, um, lighter. And so from an energy perspective, that was the department of energy, excuse me, department of energy was funding Oak Ridge and their main goal is finding, uh, ways to lower our dependence on foreign oil. And so carbon fibers played a very important role. They've invested millions and millions of dollars into that research anyways. And I met the team and I just, inquired, you know, what are they going to do with this technology? And they were going to open it for license and people could license the technology. And I just inquired about it. And they said, well, you have to know how to make carbon fiber, I, which I didn't. <laughs> and getting to know the team leader, um, we ended up forming a company called Lamont Carbon. And we ended up getting, I ended up hiring the whole team uh, that invented the process. And so I kind of got sidetracked from the bikes to carbon fiber for the last four years. Simultaneously, Simultaneously, because we're in the carbon fiber industry, we've been leveraging relationships in that industry to 
kind of bring all these ingredients together um, for bikes. And we're using bikes as a way to innovate manufacturing. And, and so um, it's been really an exciting uh, <laughs> last four years. Although I, I do look at that uh, show Silicon Valley, uh, that, that yeah. the comedy series. <laughs> We've lived yeah. that for the last four years, honestly. Oh, it's God. Been up and down, up and down. It's a high capital intensive uh, business, but it's, you know, it's been, we, we ended up getting it. It's really crazy. We ended up licensing another technology from Australia, which is um, speeds up the manufacturing process of carbon fiber four times faster. Um, so you're producing almost four times the amount of carbon fiber for, for the same amount of capital. So we have two of the most important technologies in, in carbon fiber and we're in the process of raising funds for it. Um, and so the bikes are kind of the research development for manufacturing uh, and the carbon fiber business is really um, it's not our core. It is our core business, but the bikes played as equal important role in, in, in the overall business. They're two separate businesses, but one kind of feeds off the other. And the, the, the hardest thing right now, like carbon fiber has always been handmade um, aerospace sporting goods where you don't have to use a lot of carbon fiber. Labor is not going to kill the price of the product. But to use carbon fiber in mass production, um, automation has to happen. And so mm. because of the expense of carbon fiber, there's been very little innovation in manufacturing. Until the last six or seven years, BMW has really kind of did the drive and spent billions on automation of, of composites. So we're right in the beginning of, I think, a manufacturing revolution in the next five to 10 years using composite uh, materials. Uh, our cost of carbon fiber and the way that you could make it today would compete against aluminum. Uh, and so, and you get so many better properties uh, from carbon fiber. Um, I mean, it's light, lighter weight, no corrosion, stiffer. Um, things should last significantly longer than a, uh, a metal uh, part. And so it's, it's, for me, it's exciting. And I'm quite, a, quite an old uh, entrepreneur, but it's been uh, quite a ride. It's been kind of, yeah. kind of crazy. <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the other things too, that like, you know, I often wonder like the weight you feel on your shoulders for basically being the American ambassador for just this continuing, uh, growing sport. Like, I mean, sure. I mean, there's, there's Lance Armstrong, right? I mean, you, it's, it's difficult to talk about cycling without mentioning Lance Armstrong, but also the, there's always a pause because of the issues that he had with performance enhancing drugs. So it's just like, and that, and that's not you. So, I mean, when you think about, especially now, right. And I'm not even getting into cancel culture or anything, but the fact that if someone achieves something, but they did it based on some sort of, I don't know, I'm going to air quote the way of cheating. Right. Um, like the it's null and void, you know, and, and I'm not here to throw shade on, on Lance Armstrong in any way, but like, for you that that's not the case. And so you are the, you know, it's almost like it's sure it was your, you know, you won the tour de France and that's fantastic. And you you've done that and repeated that, but the, the, the weight that you have to feel for growing this entire industry and slapping well, I don't have your that name on it. <laughs> well, but I don't I, have that you, weight. I don't, you sure it's yeah. Yeah. I, I no. the sport is, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to respond to that actually. Uh, I think it's, I think for me, it's, um, you know, let's just say there's a lot of writers that caught up into it. And it's been, 
the doping has really held back the sport from being a mainstream sport, even in terms of sponsorship. It's if you think of Formula One, the amount of money in Formula One, cycling is equally uh, exposed. Exposure of, of cycling is much bigger, actually, than Formula One in terms of participation, even the viewers. Mm. And the sport, sport could be so much bigger and greater uh, had that not happened, but it did. Um, I'm always amazed that the sport continues to thrive. I do believe people want to know um, that people are doing it legitimately. And so I was just fortunate that I didn't turn pro when I did, say, in the 90s, 2000s. So I didn't have to make that choice. There were no drugs. At least I don't believe so because I raced clean and I was still on the tour. <laughs> I, I can't say that would have been the same. I don't. I know that I wouldn't have been able to win the tour um, in the 90s, 2000, uh, if you're clean, because the, the drugs were so powerful. But at the end of my career, I, I even when I was racing, I mean, there were drugs. I mean, there were people using drugs that were like cortisone. Um, and other teams I heard about, but I always looked at it down the road, no matter which way, um, how you won really matters. I mean, to me, cheating would have been cheating myself. So it would have been... Mm. You know, it wouldn't have meant the same. And I know a lot of people could justify it and they get away with it, but I don't know. I feel really good today that I did my career that I did, but at the same time, I'm trying, I'm not going to judge riders um, that raced after me in terms of what they were faced with, because it's always how good is the system monitoring the sport? And it's always corruption at the tops corrupts everybody. And that's what's, what was really happening. Everybody in the nineties knew what was happening but nobody wanted to really kind of face the music because it meant putting a scandal in the sport. And so uh, there's always been that balance of wanting to stop cheating, but not wanting to hurt the sport. And that's what really held the sport back. I always felt like uh, in 1998, they had a very big drug scandal uh, called Festina Affair. And uh, at that point, uh, it should have been just, you know, clean house of anybody with a reputation in the sport. Anybody has a history of it. But it didn't, and it it, continue, it continued to go on. And so, but anyways, um, yeah, I, I don't think I have a, a heavy burden. I'm I'm just happy that I'm, um, I had my career that I did. Yeah, well, but I mean, I'm also you know really grateful because of your career and what you you're doing. I mean, you're continuing to change the entire industry for it. I mean, even just the fact of what you're talking about with mass production of carbon and finding a way to make it, you know, affordable for say a younger, you know, boy or girl who wants to start to compete to be able to have the the gear to do it. I mean, when you think about sports well, as a whole, goal. yes. Yeah. That's right. I, I mean, so many issues there were, were, were from, I mean, there, there were sports that like, I'll be very transparent. I wanted to play, but we couldn't, you know, I wanted to play hockey when I was younger, but my parents, you know, we didn't really have a ton of income. And so we were, they were just like, we, we can't afford the gear. So watch Mighty Ducks again. <laughs> Sports are so expensive, and, and I was fortunate. I grew up in a family that my dad got into it, and he went from a blue collar. He was a gardener to real estate, and he made good money, which afforded us to travel. Uh, but I don't know if I would have had that. Oh, actually, my parents would have supported me, even if my dad wasn't racing. But it's expensive sport, and I think cycling is one of the few Olympic sports that allowed prize money. And part of the reason for that is in Europe, they know it's a sport uh, that's expensive. And so just to support young riders, they would give equipment away. Uh, it was usually clubs that would help riders that didn't have the money. 
So it's there was a whole network. You don't have that in the U.S. And a bike is extremely expensive, and um, it it does separate people from. It, it, it's like tennis skiing. It's uh, it's a wealthy man sport, which is mm. sad. And I think uh, you know one of the great things right now is this high school racing program, mountain bike racing, uh, which there's about I think forty thousand high school racers, but they're still racing on expensive mountain bikes. Now imagine if that price of those bikes could be dropped quite a bit uh, to bring more people in or urban races, um, track races, you know, like I, I think you've heard of Red Hook, the uh, oh, yeah. little event in Brooklyn. Yeah. I could see yeah. those, see that type of race in urban settings where you're riding a track, track bike, low cost, but um, it'd be really exciting. You know, there's a lot of ways to kind of bring more people in to the sport, but the bikes are very expensive, you know, it's yeah. uh, not cheap, but it's a good investment. Yeah. Well, no, I agree. I mean, especially when you can, t- you tie it to your health and, you know, nowadays it's every, you know, health is a lifestyle in addition to just like the, the longevity aspect of it. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think when you, yeah, when you look at, look at like health, but to, to maintain that, and I always think about how I got into cycling in high school, just, just going into high school. Um, I always remember the story of my uh, fifth grade teacher. Now I was a good, bad kid. I, I was wild in school. Just couldn't sit still. Uh, she was my fifth grade substitute teacher. She ended up staying the whole year. Um, but I had just won the national championships in Seattle. It's 1977. And I was at a 7-Eleven in Reno, Nevada, riding my bike. And she came out of the store and, Greg, Greg. Oh, I'm so happy to see you. Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And she started tearing up. And she said, you know, I really was worried that you'd end up in prison one day because <laughs> I was so ADD. <laughs> so, so I, prison, she just thought I was so, I couldn't sit in a, couldn't sit in a classroom. So I was always yeah. kind of, mis, you know, misbehaving, getting sent down to the principal's office. So, um, but I really think of that always because I think cycling, um, People with real bad ADD, which I had, I mean, they end up um, being really successful or they're off on one thing to another. And there's a lot of drug use and a lot of um, kind of things that go along with ADD. And I think exercise really helped me in terms of um, having a focus and a purpose. Um, So the problem if you have ADD, you go through school, your grades aren't great. So you don't think you're, you know, if you look at the cycle, if you're not doing well in school, you end up not liking school, then you might not go to college and all these things that kind of pile on. And, uh, and that's where like in school, the, the worst thing about education today, everybody shoved into a, a room with fluorescent lights, forced to sit there for seven, eight hours a day. It's the worst learning environment period. Uh, and, um, and if you don't have this, like my wife, she could sit in the classroom and listen and, you know, she can absorb what she's listening to, but for me, it would be torture. But if mm. I was able to be active and, and, and have a little more exercise and all that, it, it would have changed the way I looked at school, looked at, um, and even felt about myself. Um, because when you're not doing well in school, it's kind of like, you know, you're not happy if you're getting really bad grades. <laughs> but yeah. uh, once I got into cycling, it changed everything for me. And I know exercise can help people, especially kids in urban areas where they're always, you know, let's say poverty, but not a lot of things to do. And, um, and it's just too bad that cycling can't be accessible to more people because it can change 
um, people, people's lives. And I think sports, that's really what sports do. They take people out of environments that could be toxic and damaging to these individuals. And, it, you know, look at basketball, football, it's taken people in, you know, underprivileged people and changed their lives. And I think that's the, the um, beauty of sports, but it's also, yeah. as you said, an expensive sport, especially cycling. Um, and I do think like for long-term health and being able to maintain a healthy lifestyle and um, you have to love what you're doing. And the problem with so many sports, it's high schools. You don't participate afterwards if you play baseball, football, or basketball. But when you get into cycling, it's a lifelong, um, a lifelong activity that you don't really stop, uh, which is, which is great, which is what's great about cycling. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious too. I mean, when, when you were, you know, at, at younger and you were getting into cycling, did you loved what you were doing or were you more into what everyone else loved that you were doing? You know, cause sometimes you're, you're, you get high off of the, the admiration of, of people and peers that you didn't have before. And then some people oh, no. just lose focus in the, on the sport themselves. Well, no, I, that's what I think was part of my, I say success is that I discovered cycling. Um, I, started riding and racing with my dad, but unlike a lot of sports parents who drive their kids, I was my dad's coach and, uh, and we rode together. And so when I discovered cycling, I had no knowledge of the sport at all. In fact, my first bike, the yellow, the Chinelli was a yellow Chinelli and I bought a matching Jersey, yellow Jersey, which I didn't even know what the Tour de France was at that point. I yeah. I was going to no say, there you go. Foreshadowing. I didn't know the Tour de France. I didn't even know what racing was. And, a week later after I bought that, I was in my first race and I won my first 11 races. And uh, remember at the starting line with some kid looking at me like with disgust and he ended up attacking. I ended up following, I ended up winning the race and a guy's named Kent Cordes. He lives in Brooklyn and his dad lived in Switzerland. His mom lived in Berkeley and he spoke French, German, and English, but he was an encyclopedia of cycling. And on my 11th or 12th race, he beat me and we kind of, I congratulated him and we became friends at that point. He said, Greg, the first thing you got to do is you got to take that yellow jersey off. And I'm like, why? Only the leader of the Tour de France wears a yellow jersey. And I said, what's the Tour de France? <laughs> I didn't even know what it was. So what was great about it, I was in something I discovered that I became passionate about. Cycling is a strategic tactics. Um, you got to be good physically, but it's there's so many things that go on in a race that I just fell in love with it. And it's like, I always think of cycling as like car racing and running combined. In fact, I did some car racing. I think bike racing is so much more um, intense in terms of reaction in a Peloton. But anyways, I, 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 you know, I didn't even get not acknowledged. in when I started racing, remember it was, I said, nobody, I said the first time I got written in the paper when I is when I won the national championships in, in 77, but even then I didn't, nobody, nobody in Reno, Nevada knew who I was uh, until I actually started. Well, let's say maybe, maybe after three years, four years, I became known locally as a really good cyclist, but that's about it. You know, I, I'm the type that doesn't need any kind of adulation. I, I, in fact, I don't like it. I prefer not to, <laughs> I like to yeah. go under, under the radar. Yeah. But it's gotta be nice to, you know, get a table at a restaurant, right? Oh, I don't like that. No, <laughs> I had friends who would go up and use my name, and I'm saying, "You don't do that." I don't <laughs> like that. No, I don't do that. I don't. I don't do that. I just don't. 
I, I think it's an arrogant, I, I think it's arrogant. I just, I, it's embarrassing. I, I couldn't do that. It's, it's, um, you have an air of, I mean, people who do that think they're better than everybody else. And I don't believe that. I think we're all equal. We're all, um, I'm not better than my other person. I might be really good at cycling. That doesn't mean I should just get um, freebies. Now, <laughs> if I do remember uh, my friend did get us into a, a very hard to get into restaurant, um, but I didn't know he dropped my name. He only told me that afterwards. <laughs> I said, don't do that, but I'm th- thank you anyways. You know, you're like, he's like, but it's the French laundry. And you're like, shut up. <laughs> this, is, this was a uh, public in France in Lyon. Oh, it was that, like wow, a two month waiting list. Yeah. So, but that was easy to get in because I'm French, no cycling, they knew me, but um, I don't think that would have happened in the French laundry. They would go, Greg who, Greg who never heard of. Oh, him. no way. The Thomas maybe Keller today, list. Maybe be, today, but not the eighties. <laughs> I'd get it at McDonald's. Yeah. Maybe I'll get maybe the front of the line. No, I wouldn't get in there either. <laughs> I mean, is that something you you've, you've carried on to, you know, your own sort of your fatherhood and, and, family and your relationships with others. I mean, cause I'll just be honest, that's a relatively rare trait in terms of the, the success and the international, you know, uh, especially geez with the, what you've received from our own government, you know, I mean, to just, now, not I'm embarrassed flex. about that. I mean, it's, I, I, I guess I really don't, I guess my parents really emphasize that we're all everybody special that, you know, every, you know, sure. I'm no, I'd say that I'm not better, but it's, it's, there's no, there was no, um, no, my, all my, my whole family is that way. It's, uh, it, I, I never, I never did take the adulation or, you know, the notoriety really well. And I don't know, right. I don't know why it's, it's, I try to absorb it, but, uh, maybe in hindsight, feel it's good to be recognized. But at the time I'm going, okay, just, I just want to race. I'm a bike racer. Okay. That's great. Um, but yeah, I, I do see like cycling though is a sport that's so hard. And remember, if you do a hundred races a year, if you win 10, 15 races, that's a great year. You still lose, you know, 90, 85 races. So you learn to lose and it's a humbling sport because, uh, so hard. And, um, I don't know very many arrogant bike racers. They're all kind of, yeah, I'm good. Um, but there's respect there. It isn't like this star um, type of sports in like basketball, baseball. It's such a sport that you don't get to go out. You don't get a, you know, there's no groupies lining the hallway. Um, And so it keeps you humble really. And I think that's part of uh, what's unique about the sport. There have been people that are pretty arrogant in cycling, but it's rare. The most of the Peloton riders are just, you know, that's why you don't really get into fights because one day later, you <laughs> bike racing is very dangerous and uh, get in a fight yeah. where you take somebody down in a crash, uh, you'll get that. They'll pay it back one day. So you, you don't want to, you don't want to, um, you don't want to, you just don't want to cause ripples in the Peloton of your racer. And, and it's also like when you're on a team, it's not a sport where everybody's like making a ton of money. And when I was racing, nobody wanted to talk about, um, salaries it was a way to keep people um suppressed where they you know they would just tell me you're the highest paid rider we've ever hired well no i wasn't <laughs> there are a whole bunch of others that they told that to everybody but it was i became very conscious not to talk about money uh coming from america everybody talked about money in sports and yeah it was 
in the seventies, eighties, every, you know, how many, how much money Mark Spitz made his endorsements, how much uh, a baseball player made. They go into Europe. I was the one that kind of wasn't shy about talking about it, but I was aware that the discrepancy between a well-paid writer and the lowest paid writer uh, was great. And you depended on those writers to help you. And so it did cause friction if you were, if you're arrogant, I mean, it you you depend on your teammates to to ride for you. An arrogant rider doesn't get um, doesn't get the support that they sh- uh, that they will need to win. So there's a there's a strate- strategic reason you should be modest in a way from racing racing perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it seems like that attitude's really kind of helped you know continue to solidify your reputation further of just you know. The, People, people, especially now more than ever, they want honesty and integrity. Yeah, that's a rare thing today, honestly, and um, <laughs> yeah. it, it is. And I, it is in every aspect of life. It's crazy and it's sad because um, I just don't know how you do business or have friendships with people that are dishonest. I mean, I don't get it. And either you have to be dishonest yourself and get go along with it, um, or you don't. And that's yeah. how it's kind of black and white for me. Well, especially now, and at least, I mean, coming from, you know, media and fashion and all that other stuff, I feel like, you know, business is really traded off of reputation versus product and end goal, right? I mean, especially with what, say, even just like a, a bike or a sweater or any of that stuff, they're they're relatively they're the same, you know, th- right. but the right. people that are wearing them or behind them, that that's the thing, you know, like for me, and that's always been the most important thing I've ever tried to do is, is like my, my history or of just like being the nice guy is, is probably done more for me than any thing I've ever, you know, school I went to or book I read or anything else. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it, I I guess I don't even understand the psychology and it's, there's a lot of reasons people are narcissistic and, and usually narcissists don't really feel good about themselves. So it goes from not feeling good to being extremely arrogant. And so there's always that background. Because if you're confident about yourself, you don't need to be arrogant. You just, you are who you are. And that's where I, I did notice a few writers that they were great when they weren't winning, but the moment they won, they became assholes, (laughs) really uh, not nice people. And uh, I never could understand that. I mean, it's fleeting. It's so fleeting. But um, no, I think, I mean, everyone wants to be treated like um, that as, you know, if, if they, what do they say? Uh, treat others as the, as you would want to be treated. And yeah. uh, if you think that way, that's the way life should be. And it'd be crazy that you, uh, you want to be cheated by somebody. <laughs> yeah. I always look at people in, in many ways, many top people would project their own, what they're doing, you know, if they believe you were cheating and were convinced of it, it's because they cheat and they can't imagine somebody else not cheating. And I had that problem with Lance Armstrong. He just couldn't believe I wouldn't cheat. And so, and, uh, but as he's saying this in this conversation with me, he was admitting what he was doing. This is like a, yeah. a, 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 a call we had I don't know, 15 years ago, but it was really interesting because I think that way right now with our ex-president, there's there's a psychology. If he believes everybody's cheating, if he's cheating, he believes everybody else is cheating. And it's it's it causes a lot of distrust. And um, and that's in sports, it's truly that way because and there's, there's a lot of ego in cycling. A lot of people believe they're as good as the other person. 
they can't just admit that maybe somebody else is better. So they're always, even mm-hmm. when I started bike racing, you know, what did I do? I, 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 I've said this story too many times, but I had a little scar on my calf, calf, uh, and my back of my leg. And I cut it on barbed wire, my, uh, on my dad's property. Didn't get stitches, did it myself, butterfly bandaid, oxygen peroxide. Uh, and anyways, they kept saying, well, I think he had a, it's so funny, but the rumor was I had a, it's probably a joke, but I don't know. Some of these kids were, uh, I don't know if it was a joke, but some kind of muscle transplant. One guy, one kid said it was a kangaroo muscle, but they just couldn't believe that maybe I was that good. And, uh, and I was fortunate because that I was really that good and I could understand it if, um, I, I never would have looked at somebody better than me, just that they must be doing something. But that's the nature of a lot of people in, in sports. They believe that anybody who's better than has to be doing something not right, illegal, illegally. Yeah. And that's what drives yeah. uh, people to do stuff. Yeah. I mean, that that's definitely an unfortunate that 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 continues to this day. I mean, we were uh, we were playing board games over the holidays with my family and uh, one of the one of the kids was, was, was doing pretty well. And someone kept being like, you gotta be cheating. And I was like, what the hell? No, they're just, they're winning. It's fine. That is it. It that's, it, that's, that's <laughs> the psychology. That's why you do have to come down hard on cheaters. I mean, because it becomes acceptable. Um, when, when, when you let people get away with it, then everybody's going to, they're going to do the same thing. And, um, in sports, it's been very difficult because drugs, drug testing is usually behind the drug takers. Uh, but I think right. that today there's the science and a lot of quick testing. It's getting to the point where as long as it's honest, they're really doing the drug test. I think it's keeping the high performance drugs kind of out of the way, which is great. I just want to make sure cycling has is at a level that people who choose not to do it could still compete. That's the main goal. Uh, you're never going to get rid of all cheating, but you could do everything you can to, to keep it at bay. There's a lot of people that argue, let's make it legal, but uh, legalized doping. But uh, the truth is most people don't want to see that. They want to know people who, who they want to know who's really the best cyclist out there, best, best athlete. Uh, otherwise it become like professional wrestling. I mean, there'd be, it would lose credibility. And that's what even with in track and field, it lost a lot of credibility in the nineties because of so many um, drug busts. Uh, cycling yeah. is such a bigger sport and it somehow it saved itself. But I have to say that people, there was riders in the nineties and, and first decade of the, of the 21st century that believed ah, the, the spectators want to see fat riders go faster and not true. They look for the human drama. In fact, when you're not doping, it's more dramatic. And so yeah. at one point in cycling, everybody stayed at the same pace because everybody was on juice. But uh, the racing in the last couple of years has been so much better than, than I've seen it in years, years. Young riders are winning uh, the tour. Um, they're competitive before it wasn't, you know, if you're 1920, um, I always look at those kids would not be, they don't, nobody gets into a sport to, to cheat. So it's a slow seduction by teams. And today, mm. the fact that riders under 22 are some of the best is a really good sign. Um, you know, I think Pogaccia, uh, the guy who won the tour this last year is just 21. Uh, Bernal, who is uh, Colombian, won it the year before at 22. So there's some really good signs that cycling is on a really good path. But you got to be vigilant. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like, it, especially now, 
there's more ways to, um, you know, to be a better athlete without doing like, you know, like I'm like, I'm going to air quote, like performance enhancing in the ways that just your diet, right? Like so many people, sure. Tom Brady, right. Like for, for example, I mean, how many, look, he's bringing the Buccaneers to the Super Bowl. <laughs> like it's insane. I know, but and, see, but he's proof, but he's proof though, that it's the power meter that I used before when I was 47. Yeah. He has proof that you do not go down that much as you get older. The problem, I think, in sports and any business, people have, a, you know, think of a career, um, Wall Street, whatever. People have like a 20-year span of intensity they can handle. At one point, mm. you get saturated. And I think in cycling, if you started, I always see that when riders would start at eight years old, 20 years later, they were stopping at 25, 26. Riders who got into the sport late, later, like I had a teammate Gilbert Ducal La Salle, I think he got into the sport at 21 or 22, but he raced, he won the Perrier Bay at 39. So, um, so I think, you know, the, the uh, nutrition's really good. All this performance, I mean, it's important, but I think it's, I think today, I think there's more knowledge of, for nutrition. I actually, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm always a skeptic on nutrition because, uh, we ate really well. And I think the, there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of marketing it. I, I think that when you're a world-class athlete for many years, I mean, it still hasn't changed, but um, if you've been a world-class cyclist, you've always been eating the proper weight. Now for the average rider getting into it, there's much more knowledge. I think of the training too, today, people, the average rider can get advice and knowledge that was only exclusive to riders that had, these coaches and they paid a lot of money mm. um, to get the, that training advice. That's what's really, I think helped a lot of people. And there's, yeah, I think, cause it's when I was racing, there was no book on how to train truly in a scientific way. And I think my book was the very first one that came out uh, that was based on physiology. So if you think of that over the years, that's really um, there's really good books out today and there's more knowledge of, of everything today. I think it's, I think it, what it, hap, it does, at least in cycling, what I see now is it's made a broader range of riders a little bit fitter in the early part of the season. Um, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, by the time in pro racing, by the time you got to June, July, and August, um, you know, you end up being equal. Um, but I do see like, I'd say like in terms of when I started racing, if you had a really good training program in the early season, you could perform really well. People kind of took their time to get in shape. Now everybody's in shape from day one. And so mm. it's very intense. And so you, you really have to uh, be on the bike year round training pretty intense year round. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm really, I'm always a skeptic on, on, cause I've, and when I was, when I was in the early nineties, I won my third tour de France in 1990 and um, all of a sudden, 1991, I I was I think in better shape than I was in, in both 89 tour and 80 uh, or the in 1990. I think I was as strong as I was in 86, which was at my peak before I had this hunting accident. And I thought I was going to win the tour just literally breathing through my nose. That's what they call breathing. Put your breathing. Put your two fingers underneath your nose. That's breathing through your nose. And uh, I took the yellow jersey right away in the first big time trial. 70 kilometers. I was second by eight or nine seconds behind Miguel Indoran, who ended up winning the race, <clears throat> but their race never got slower. It kept going faster and faster. When I was racing up at, for 10 years, 
after four or five days, the race would slow down. He'd race really hard for three, four days. There'd be another day of fatigue. Everybody got tired about the same time. By 1991, there was nobody, there were no slow days. It was just balls to the wall. And, uh, and so when I, I, all these riders that all of a sudden started winning big races, everybody said it's because they lost weight. And I'm going, okay, I'm 5% body fat, 3% body fat. Uh, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about low-fat diets. That was the big thing, low-fat. Turned out to be the worst thing you could ever do. And I tried to eat low-fat, probably killed my, killed my career because you need fat and protein. So that yeah. was that's why I always get – I get really careful when I hear athletes talking, oh, they changed to a keto diet. Well, maybe. Maybe it helps. Maybe not. I don't know. But right. uh, So I'm a skeptic from that period. I always – I'm skeptical about claims of – um, how people train. Um, I think you've got to be careful watching world-class athletes and how they train, because if they're clean, it's one thing. If they're not, uh, they could do so much more volume intensity. Um, so that's why I'm, <laughs> I have that experience of hearing all the bogus reasons why people race better. Oh, I just changed my diet. I just lost a pound or two. No, no, you didn't. It was EPO. <laughs> that's what that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, I, a buddy of mine, cause you mentioned keto. Um, he, he's a doctor and, and he was, uh, he does a lot of nutrition stuff and, and he, all of his patients now are coming up to him and, and they all want to do keto stuff. And he was like, this is going to destroy your liver. And he was just like, all these things are just like taking a massive toll on, you know, your organs. He's like, don't do this. <laughs> well, the, the truth is it's a diet's only good if you could do it for the rest of your life. But Doing a keto diet, I don't think is sustainable. It's like yeah. never eating fruit, never eating bread ever again. I mean, life is life is part pleasure too. It's, yeah. you know, I always remember hearing about the there's a group movement of um, I call it starvation cult, where there was a study on fruit flies. If they reduced their calories by 60, 50, 60 percent, they could extend their life by 30 percent. And I, I, there was a, I said, I think it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. And there were a lot of people doing that. They're trying to, you know, imagine starting at 28 years old, cutting your calories by 50%. And I do believe you can get longer life, but your whole hormone system, testosterone requires protein, fat, certain amount of calories. And I read the depression rate with these people was horrendous. No libido, uh, depressed. And I kind of go, can you imagine living that long with the hope that you're going to live past maybe 90, 100, and you're, you know, 60, 70, you've lived 30 years starving yourself, no sex, no fun, no nice restaurants, and you get hit yeah. by a bus. <laughs> what good would be? You, you do all that and you get hit by a bus and you 30 years of suffering. Just not worth it. Just crazy. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And that that's, that's a good perspective too, because I feel like, so many people like they're, you know, they're just based on like, oh, I'm going to do this diet. Like, and they're all like trend diets too. I mean, we, my wife and I do whole 30 a bunch of times and we realize we're like, if we keep on whole 30, we're going to be divorced in like the next month. Is whole 30. <laughs> whole 30 is it's like Atkins and every other sort of like trend diet. Um, but it basically whole 30 is like no inflammatory stuff. And the, oh, the yeah. concept to like, to, to its defense is to try to remove the, um, constant 
uh, like basically how we use food to fix things in our life. Right. right. So that's, that's, that's a real issue. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know, but you basically, there's no bread, there's no, uh, soy, there's no legumes, there's no, um, dairy, there's no, uh, there's basically no sugar. You can have fruit, but they're like, you know, you can only have it in very small amounts. And so no, none of that stuff. Uh, no. And so, so with that stuff, like my wife and I, you know, with, we're already in a high stress environment that we're, you know, kind of in quarantine and we're all working from home and we're, you know, we got our, our toddler and we just relocated. And all of a sudden we introduced this diet that basically is like shock therapy diet. And next thing you know, we're snapping at each other over everything. I'm just like, why, why can't you just load the dishwasher? You know, and all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, this diet's going to kill us. That's the worst thing you could do. It's like, yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, it's funny because I think a lot of cycling teams, I think there's a truth to the inflammation type of diet, but like even bread, um, it depends your body, body. I mean, if you're gluten intolerant, it's going to cause issues. I think no doubt sugar is probably the worst thing. Refined sugar uh, is the worst thing. If you could just cut that out as much as you can, but even, but cut it out as much as you can, doesn't mean you can ever have it. And diets 90, it's proven 99% of the diets never succeed. Never. And that's why it's important getting into a, if you can cut your sugars out and exercise, that's the best way to, to live. Even if you're heavy, if you're a little bit overweight, but you're exercising, there's not a significant difference in, in mortality rates with people who are modestly heavy, but they exercise. And that's the most important thing is, is, you know, I do think inflammation, but it's, there's a lot of things, inflammation markers, there's a lot of things that cause that. Um, it could be a whole host of things, but I, I do think it's, if you, my, my sister-in-law, my father-in-law were leading allergist, uh, uh, really, he pioneered the sublingual drops. Um, they're actually working mm-hmm. on some pretty, my sister-in-law's working on some pretty cool stuff with type one diabetes with an immune, how your immunity kind of responds and stuff. That's where like vaccines, when people are, uh, fear vaccinations, if you know the science behind it, it's, 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 extremely safe. And it really, it really makes, it's, it's a game changer in preventing disease, especially things like COVID. But, um, but I think like with bread and some of the things there, people could have real severe allergic reactions, peanuts and all that, but the inflammation part, I think it is sugars. Sugars are probably the leading culprit in inflammation. Mm. So, but having bread occasionally, I mean, I don't think the Italians are walking around inflamed body by eating their bread. They eat pasta. There's, but if you're eating McDonald's and, and drinking, you know, 16 ounce cans of Coke and having candy bars, that's really what is going to kill you. I don't think yeah. eating some bread um, at dinner or something like that's going to kill you. It's um, yeah. So you got to still love life. That's why I love Europe. I love France. I love Italy. There's they'll watch what they eat, but it's not about they'll eat foie gras or, you know, or escargot <laughs> or cheese <laughs> and they live as well. And as long as, uh, Americans actually Italians are have long longevity. So there's a lot of money being made off of, of, of diets. A lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost, I basically block every Instagram ad related to supplements or kind of goofy things. I'm just like, no, no. I mean, vitamin D is the number one thing. Vitamin D, vitamin D. Yeah. The number one supplement you, they show with COVID people have low 
have high enough vitamin D, don't die from COVID. So vitamin D is linked to so many things, depression, everything. It's the most important um, important uh, nutrient that you need. So that's, yeah. if you only take vitamin D, that's, that's all you need, really. There we go. Good to know. Well, Greg, I, I want to be conscious of your time here. So I... Thank you, thank you so much for for chatting with me. This was uh, this was a lot of fun, and it was a huge pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Well, great! It was really good talking with you. And um, maybe if I make it to St. Louis, I'll hook you up and go for a bike ride. Yeah. Oh my God, that would be insane! I would love that. Yeah. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. Our associate producer is Jason Schwimmer. Maddie Franklin is in your DMs and running our socials. Brendan Finn edits the show and everything else in my life. Theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find us on Instagram, at Blamo Podcast. And do us a favor, leave a review on whatever app you're listening to us on, unless you're driving your car, otherwise don't crash. But you can pull over if you want. If you can't stop and need all that hot content, join us on Patreon for tons of exclusive pods, a private Slack group, merch hookups, and all the fun you can imagine in the whole world. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. See you soon.